so while we have this precious human life, an opportunity to practice the Dharma and interest in in the Dharma and interest in ordination, this life doesn't last very long. And when we least expect it, death arrives. We don't know when we're going to die. It could be very soon. It could be after a while. But death will definitely come, and this life and the opportunity it brings will end. And we have to ask ourselves am I ready to die? Do I know what to do at the time of death to guide my own mind? If I have disturbing visions at the time of death, how do I handle them? So my mind is grasping at the identity and people and body of this life, how do I release that grasping? So we have to ask ourselves if we have the tools to be able to guide our mind at the time of death and if we have the accumulation of merit to be able to have a good rebirth in the next life. And that good rebirth we seek in the next life is not an ending to itself. It's only for the purpose of having another opportunity to practice the Dharma. So while our long-term aim is full enlightenment, we have to ask ourselves if we can attain the short-term conducive circumstances needed to attain our long-term goal. And if not, then for the benefit of sentient beings and for our own benefit, we need to get to work and not let the self-centered mind waste a lot of time making up false stories. Let's develop that strong determination as our motivation today. There were a few thoughts I had about things we talked about yesterday that I thought I would mention first before going on today. Um, So yesterday we talked a little bit about the robes and the changing of the colors of the robes. And 
you know, somebody could get uh, very um, persnickety and say, oh, these robes aren't according to Vinaya. You know, they're the wrong color. They're not the color that the Buddha said, or they're not the style that the Buddha said, or this and this. You know, the Buddha said the robes have to be like this. So somebody could do that. Personally speaking, my own personal opinion, is uh, the reason for... I think we have to look more at the reason for wearing robes and what the intention of it is uh, and how it works with our mind. So in one way, it is a uniform, just as people in the world identify their occupations by their clothing. So we too identify you know, where we're putting our energy with our clothing. Um, wearing robes is not a, a, shouldn't be a cause of arrogance, thinking oh, I'm better than other people, or a cause for inferiority, thinking I'm worse than other people, but rather just feeling uh, gratitude that we can wear the clothes, wear the signs that our teacher, the Buddha, also wore. And so when you put on your robes, really feeling like, oh, I'm in the lineage of the Buddha. At least I'm wearing the same clothes, indicating that I have the same intention and same focus in my life as the Buddha did. And as the lineage did. Because by and large, uh, the lineage masters coming down have been monastics. And so... Uh, really taking that on as a privilege and as a responsibility. It's a privilege because we've had the opportunity to ordain and to follow in the Buddha's footsteps like this, to live the lifestyle that the Buddha uh, lived, to wear the clothes that that he's worn. Um, But it also bears a responsibility because uh, when people see us in robes, it isn't Uh, It's not that they're just seeing us and our personality, but we're representing uh, the Buddha's teachings. And so how we behave when we're wearing the robes has an impact on other people. And so this functions, actually, if we have the correct mental state, to make us much more careful in our behavior because we don't want to disillusion other people and we don't want to make other people lose faith. So when you're an ordinary person uh, in ordinary clothes, if you go out in town and you drink or you're shouting or screaming at somebody or making a ruckus or, uh, you know, doing whatever, people, they don't know what religion you are, they don't know anything about you, they just say, oh, that person's an idiot. But <laughs> if you're wearing the robes, you know, they'll say, oh, why is this Buddhist monastic shouting and screaming and creating a fuss and swearing and acting in this way or drinking or, you know, whatever it is? Isn't this person, you know, I thought Buddhism was tell, teaching people to behave in a different way. So when you know this and, and you care about other people, then it makes you uh, more aware Uh, more mindful you know in your daily life so that you restrain yourself from bad behavior because you care about others yeah 
And of course, you restrain yourself, restrain ourselves from bad behavior, also out of, you know, a sense of our own integrity and self-respect. Okay, um, and the fact that all the sangha wears the same clothes, this flies in the face of American culture, in which we all try to distinguish ourselves by what we wear. Clothes is a big thing, isn't it? It's a huge thing. When you have a certain kind of job, you have to wear a certain kind of clothes. And if you want to have certain kind of friends, you have to wear a certain kind of clothes and comb your hair in a certain kind of way. And, you know, if we, when we're trying to create an image, we use it by how we look by our physical appearance our clothes and our hair and if we um, you know want to impress people we do it through our clothes and our hair if we feel bad about ourselves and we want to perk ourselves up we do it by making ourselves look good yeah because people feel good about themselves when they get dressed up and they go to a party yeah think about it no, in society, if you go to a big fancy party or a Saturday night thing, then you get all dressed up, then people tell you you look good, then you feel you look good because you're wearing these nice clothes and, you know, your hair and everything. So people use looks as a way to, to increase their self-esteem. So as a monastic, we are consciously giving all this up, Okay. And saying that I'm not going to create an image by how I look. Yeah. And if people are going to like me, it's not because I'm physically attractive, not because I'm sexy, but because I have some kind of inner beauty. Yeah. But in American society, everybody's trying to look sexy, as if looking sexy, whatever that means, means that you're successful as a human being. You know, because we put up sex as the be-all and end-all of happiness. And so then you have to dress a certain way, walk a certain way, move your eyes in a certain way, do all these things, you know, trying to copy what you think other people who you think other people think look sexy. Right? So that other people will be attracted to you. Because you look like what you think they think looks sexy. Crazy, isn't it? Totally crazy. Yeah. So as monastics, we're giving that up. We're saying, forget it. Yeah. And we're also saying, I'm not going to look at how other people look and walk and move their eyes for sex appeal. Because I'm just not interested in that. You know, there's other things that are more important in my life. Also, because all the Sangha wears the same clothes, we don't distinguish ourselves as individuals. We may try to in our robes. And you see this, you know, like with the, with the uh, Tibetan monks in India. Yeah? It, shoes are a big status thing. Yeah? If you're able to get a pair of Nike shoes... You have a good jindak, you know. Or now they're now they're all into backpacks. Before they weren't, you know, they were content content with the jolas. Now backpacks. Oh, you're modern because you have a backpack. Okay. 
So, you know, these kinds of things. And then, of course, oh, let's get some silk shirts. Or let's get brocade. Or, you know, let's uh, get our cloth so that our... um, our donkas and our shemdap and our zen all are made of the same color instead of different colors of maroon. Yeah. I want a match. Okay. Or, um, you know, I want to wear soft clothes. Yeah, I don't like fabric that's too rough. Or I like fabric that's thin. Or I like fabric that's thick. Or, you know, whatever. You know, I don't like when my blue stripe gets faded out. You know, nowadays it doesn't because we have good cord, but in the old days it used to get faded. So you get into all this thing of how my robes look, how my robes feel. You know, uh, are other people going to look? And you know, oh, your winter zen is very soft. It looks so warm. You know, where did you get that? <laughs> yeah. So we can get into things like that. Or here in a cold climate, we wear sweaters. And there are definitely some sweaters that we receive as offerings that are really far too fancy for monastics to wear. You know, even though we've eliminated wearing, you know, little decorations, sometimes you get stuff with little trim or stuff, different color trim. So, you know, we don't wear any of that. But then you look at the, the knitting, the style of the knit, the, the weave of, of the knitting and the patterns in it and it makes little designs here you know the way it makes designs and stuff like that uh, or the way it fits you if it's a little bit snug and shows off your body or you don't want it to be too loose and looking sloppy you know and we can get very into this kind of thing yeah and uh, you know all that same old worldly stuff come back, comes back and then we want to distinguish ourselves in a slightly different way. You know, I don't want to have a belt like everybody else has. Yeah, I want a different kind of belt. Or I want different shoes. Yeah, I want shoes that look really nice. I want a jola that says, you know, this and that on it. Okay? But the real important thing when you're mona- wearing monastic robes is as much as possible everybody tries to look in the, alike. And in the Chinese robes, it's much more restricted. You know, you don't really have a choice about your shoes. I've noticed some Chinese groups now, they're wearing Nikes. I'm quite surprised. But most of them, they have a certain kind of standard Chinese monastic shoe. You know, and everybody just wears the same shoes. You carry the same jolas. Okay. Um, And so the idea really with the monastic robes is as much as possible that you really look like everybody else and you don't distinguish yourself by the way you you look in any kind of way by having robes of nice material or, you know, special color or special shoes or special kind of sweater or, you know, whatever. So as much as possible, you know, because that really affects your mind because our mind always wants to stick out and have people notice us, doesn't it? Okay. So the important thing is, you know, how it it takes away wearing robes, takes away that sense of individuality, that sense of look at me because I'm different from everybody else. Yeah. So it takes that away from us. 
And some people feel quite uncomfortable with it, but it's, it's quite good. On the other hand, being a Western monastic, yeah, and all sorts of people look at you, and you know who wouldn't normally look at you, and you have all this attention that you would really like sometimes not to have because you'd like to just be able to walk through someplace without people looking at you, and so you, you get all this other kind of attention. Yeah, so we have to learn to deal with that. And I know for me, I mean, I don't even notice, hardly notice anymore that people stare at me. Remember, I was with somebody once, and they said, "Are you aware that all the people here are looking at you?" No, no, not after this many years. Aware of it? Okay. Yeah, but it does provide a way for you to connect with people sometimes. If they know what the ropes are. And then you always also have the opportunity, you know, when they say Hare Krishna uh, to you, you know, to maintain equanimity or, you know, when they um, tell people, I get so many consoling remarks about, you know, dear, it, your hair will grow back when the chemo's over, don't worry. You know, so you have an opportunity just to maintain equanimity. Or at one time, I was sitting in an airport and somebody was coming towards me from a distance, you know, looking really eager. And I'm going, uh-oh, where do I know this person from? She looks like she knows me and, you know, is happy to see me or something and wants to say something. And where do I know her? And I couldn't face it. And she, I couldn't recognize her face. And she got to me and she looked and she said, It's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so so you you just have the opportunity to have all these kinds of experiences. <laughs> um, okay, the, those were some reflections I had after a discussion about clubs yesterday. Then I also just um, wanted to to point out. Uh, in the discussion that, you know, in some ways we're all very, very similar in the sense that we share the same afflictions. And in other ways we're, we're very dissimilar. As yesterday it came up, I think in the discussion group, one person was saying, uh, it's, you know, I have to really guard my mind from attachment, so it's important for me to, to stay here because otherwise when I go out my mind goes berserky with all the objects of attachment. And another person saying, oh, but when I go out I, I see all these people and they're suffering and it makes me want to practice more. So to recognize that there's no one, we can't say one is right and one's wrong, that people are very different and people's minds work in different ways, okay? So we, um, you know, we have many ways in which we're similar and many ways in which we aren't. Yeah. So we accept the similarities, we accept the differences. Okay. Um, Is there any... Oh, and, and regarding that, you know, for staying in the monastery, because lots of times Westerners say, oh, you're escaping from reality by living in a monastery. I wish it were so easy to <laughs> escape from samsara. You know? Not that samsara is reality. They think it is. Samsara is unreality. But if you could escape from samsara... By living in a monastery, what an easy way to do it. Everybody should do it. You know, but you don't escape 
by living in a monastery. All your garbage comes with you right smack into the monastery. Yeah. So don't think that all of a sudden you take the ordination and then your mind changes completely and all those attachments gone and you never get angry again and now you're somehow perfect floating on that cloud. Okay? So don't don't have that kind of expectation. But the monastery in a in a way is a very protective environment because our minds do, you know, have a tendency, many people's minds, not everybody, many people's minds, to go berserky when they have a lot of sense stimulation, you know. And some people just get exhausted by the sense stimulation. Some people just get sucked in by the sense stimulation. So trying to restrict our sense contact gives us the opportunity to calm the mind down and develop concentration. And then with that concentration, it becomes easier to develop wisdom. So if people are saying, oh, you're just escaping all the ups and downs of life, you know, you say, actually, I'm trying to learn to develop some concentration and wisdom. And because my mind is so reactive to everything I see out there, it becomes difficult to develop that concentration when I'm right smack in the middle of it. You know, um, uh, you know some, sometimes people look at ordained life and they say, oh, it must be so difficult to be ordained. Yeah, really difficult. You can't have sex. You can't go to parties. You can't listen to music. You can't go dancing, all this stuff. You must be so miserable. Yeah. And my feeling is that if you think that's mis- you know, not being able to do those things is misery, then you're not really ready to, to ordain, you know. But for me, when I look at the way lay people live, to me, that's, that's quite you know, miserable. And I think it would be very, not, not so much miserable, but I think it would be extremely difficult to practice as a lay person. You know, where many people think, oh, being a monastic to practice is so difficult. I think being a lay person and practicing is very difficult. You know, being in a relationship takes so much time and so much energy. How do you have time to practice when you always have to take care of another person because they're upset about something or they want your companionship or they want this or that and your energy is just going towards your partner all the time and, you know, working to keep the relationship. And then if you have kids, my goodness, you know, you, you can't even wake up refreshed in the morning because you've been up all night with this shrieking, crying baby. Yeah? And so, yes, while it is good to, you know, remember the kindness of others and develop all these qualities that lay practitioners tell themselves they're going to develop by having children, personally speaking, I think that my mind isn't strong enough to develop those qualities in that situation. And that I would just get, you know, like after not sleeping for well for a certain number of nights with a shrieking baby... You know, just like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Ah, Get me out of here. You know, or they become a teenager and everything you've done to help them, now they throw his mud back in your face. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Were we nice to our parents when we were teenagers? No. 
the most of us weren't. Yeah. And um, I think one woman, when I was in Cleveland this, this summer, um, she, her, uh, both she and her husband are professionals, and one of their children is like around 21 or so, and it looks like he has schizophrenia. And so she said, we're really having to come to terms that, you know, he's schizophrenic. And then she looked at me and she said, now I'm understanding about celibacy. It's not about the sex, it's about the kids. You know, because it was so much suffering for her to see her child being so unhappy and so resistant to being helped. Yeah, it was so painful for her that she wanted to help and he, of course, saw the family as the enemy. Yeah? So these kinds of things, I think, you know, practicing as a layperson actually is extremely difficult. I would find it very hard. And I think it's easier to practice as a monastic personally but you know that depends on your mind because some people you know it's like they for them being celibate yeah or taking care of themselves emotionally instead of running to a partner who hugs you and tells you you're wonderful those kind of things are difficult for that person and they they think monastic life would be hard and lay life is easy okay but in any case I don't think uh you're escaping. <laughs> and if you think you're escaping, you're going to have a big wake-up call. <laughs> yeah. When you find out that, you know, all your afflictions are functioning just as before. Yeah. But the nice thing is that you have the opportunity to work with them within an environment where things are structured and thought out to help you work with your afflictions. Okay? So in setting up the Abbey, the many different things that we do are done with a purpose. And I find that many times guests come here and they don't understand the purpose of why we do things the way we do. How could they? They're not monastics. They've never lived in a community. And they think that things, you know, they, they think it's very peculiar the way we live. But actually, you know, the schedule and so many things we do are thought out particularly in order to facilitate Dharma practice. And even in um, drawing the plans for Gotami House, you know, you'll remember talking with the architect, you know, that I had I've lived in community for a long time and what kind of floor plan facilitates introspection and harmony and what kind of floor plan facilitates you know feeling crowded and uh, you know unharmonious yeah? so all these kinds of things are thought out for that reason but you know, people who aren't familiar with monastic life very often don't understand. So it's something we have to take care of and really explain to them when they come here because sometimes they're, they're very befuddled. Yeah. Now why are you eating out of bowls that, you know, are like that? Yeah. They're so impractical 
um, or you know, or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, many things. Why? Why do you all bow at the same time? Why do you bow to each other? You know. Why do we only reheat food once and not more than one time? Okay. There's all these reasons why we set things up the way they are done. Some of the monastics may not even know that these things are thought out, you know, beforehand for health, you know, for harmony, for introspection. Any questions or comments so far? Yeah. Uh, somebody once said to me that, you know, uh, from me yeah. being all that is escaping. Mm-hmm. And I you know, asked him, have you ever meditated before? And I thought, yeah, I tried. Was it easy? <laughs> <laughs> <And> I, no. <laughs> How long did you meditate for? Well, you know, Ten minutes. Have you ever done it for an hour and a half straight? <laughs> Have you ever watched what your mind does? <laughs> and they very quickly, I think there's just a, a disconnect, right? I think yeah. they don't understand that we're just people, shorter people. Mm-hmm. So that we have the same experience and we sit down and meditate as they would have when they sit down to try mm-hmm. and calm their mind. Yeah. Just try to be calm. Yeah. And that quickly Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when a person thought you were living in a monastery to escape, then you showed them that meditation is actually something quite difficult to do. And actually, the way to escape is to turn on the television and sit in front of the computer or whatever. And then the person came to appreciate that you're doing something difficult here, not escaping. Anything else? Okay, then I thought I would go on from yesterday. Yesterday we had gotten to the point of um, where were we? We had gone through the ignoble search and the noble search. Okay, so the Buddha was uh, practicing, and let me see. But, yeah, he had been to the two teachers, left the two teachers, was now continuing on his search. Okay? And so he had said that he had gone to that one place with the river and the trees, and now he was going to sit down and meditate. And so, actually, what he uh, did is he went with five companions to this one place. Now, you know, the whole atmosphere in... um, in Bihar, the climate is so much different than it was at the time of the Buddha because the river's totally dried up, you know, and that's it's not lush across there. It's, it's quite dry now. Uh, but he went to practice these very severe austerities because this was, again, something that was quite uh, popular at the time of the Buddha. And even in our time, you know, this idea that you know, because people can see just the the attachment that comes from having a body. 
Okay, we're attached to food, we're attached to smells, we're attached to tactile things, we're attached to sex, we're attached to sounds, we're attached to temp- you know, the right temperature, we're attached to soft beds, you, all these kinds of things, just having to do with the body being comfortable and the senses being satisfied. We're attached to food, we, we don't like bad smells and all of this. And so people were noticing, boy, you know, we're so much under the control of the five senses that have to do with the body uh, that the mind's not free and we just fall into attachment with the objects of the senses. So many of the wanderers at the time of the Buddha went and did these very extreme ascetic practices thinking that if the body were suffering, that making the body suffer would cancel out the attachment to the, the pleasure of the body. In other words, by, by you know, experiencing pain, one would see the body as something undesirable and give up attachment to the pleasures of the body. So there was this thought also in the Catholic Church uh, until Vatican II, when you know people would take that, what did you call it? Self-flagellation, and there was that, and wear the hair shirts, you know, and sit in cold water and do these kinds of things, you know, with the idea that the body is bad and it's sinful and there's so much attachment to the body. So if you make it suffer, you'll let go of the attachment. Okay. Even in India nowadays, especially in Rishikesh, there's a lot of these um, ascetics. Some of, some of them go naked. I don't know if they do this so much nowadays, but they did this at the time of the Buddha. Some of them stand on one leg. Some of them um, are, you know, there's certain Hindu groups. I remember when I was in Singapore and Malaysia where they hook things through their the flesh in their back and pull these carts you know and just all sorts of stuff as an effort to tame the attachment to the body so this was very popular and it was seen you know the people who could make the body suffer and overcome attachment to the body were seen as real strong practitioners at that time hmm? And in a certain way, you know, if, if you could see that somebody has the inner strength not to fall apart because they experience pain, that is something admirable, isn't it, in a way? Because you see some people that uh, the slightest little pain and they're weeping and crying and wailing and they can't stand it. So when you see people who can endure a lot of pain and somehow it's through, you know, this self-discipline or whatever it could be an, you know many people could see it as an admirable thing okay so the Buddha went to to do this with his five companions yeah so he said here um, we're shifting to uh, Sutta uh, Majjhimunikaya number 12 the um, greater discourse on the lion's roar so he's, uh, the Buddha is addressing Shariputra here. And so he's speaking of his own um, austerities as a bodhisattva. So he says, Shariputra, I recall having lived a holy life possessing four factors. 
I have practiced asceticism, the extreme of asceticism. I have practiced coarseness, the extreme of coarseness. I have practiced scrupulousness, the extreme of scrupulousness. I have practiced seclusion, the extreme of seclusion. So that's the summary at the beginning. Now he's going to explain. Such was my way, uh, such was my asceticism, Shariputra, that I went naked, rejecting conventions, licking my hands, not coming when asked, not stopping when asked. I should add here that at the time of the Buddha, there was, you know, people had faith of the, in, in karma. And, they fig- and they, some people thought that if they acted like dogs, they would consume the karma to be born as a dog, and that would create the karma to have a heavenly rebirth. Mm-hmm. So you had people who went around and acted like dogs. Was it here that I... I I recently I was uh, I must have been somewhere else when I was traveling you know so these these dog ascetics would come and you know they would curl up like a dog curls up they would eat they would walk around on all fours they would eat food by sticking their their nose in the food and just eating it like that yeah they wouldn't wear clothes they wouldn't speak you know or sometimes they would speak there was, uh, you know, and there was ox ascetics who would go around, um, you know, putting uh, horns on their head like oxen and walking around. They were oxen. There's one sutra, which I was teaching recently, where these two ascetics went to the Buddha and asked the Buddha what their future life was going to be because they thought the Buddha was going to tell them they were going to have a heavenly rebirth because they were practicing like this. And the Buddha said, uh-uh, you're going to have a lower rebirth and they completely freaked out and then, the, you know, that way started practicing properly. Okay. But you can see the Buddha, you know, licking my hands, not coming when asked, not stopping when asked. I did not accept food brought, you know, food that was brought or food um, specially made or an invitation to a meal. I received nothing from a pot from a bowl, across a threshold, across a stick. No, so people giving him any kind of food, across a pestle, from two people eating together, from a pregnant woman, from a nursing woman, from a woman in the midst of men, um, from where food was advertised to be distributed, uh, from where a dog was waiting, he would let the dog take the food, from where flies were buzzing, I accepted no fish or meat. I drank no liquor, wine, or fermented brew. I kept to one house, to one morsel. Okay? So he would go to one house on alms and then just have one morsel. Or I kept to two houses and two morsels. You know, or three houses and three morsels. Up to I kept to seven houses to seven morsels. I lived on one saucerful a day on two saucerfuls a day up to on seven saucerfuls a day so he tried all these different ascetic practices I took food once a day once every two days once every seven days and so on up to once every fortnight I dwelt pursuing the practice of taking food at stated intervals I was an eater of greens or millet or wild rice 
or hide parings or moss or rice bran or rice scum or sesame flour or grass or cow dung. I lived on forest roots and fruits. I fed on fallen fruits that were rotting and overripe. I clothed myself in hemp, which was itchy, you know, in hemp mixed cloth, in shrouds, so the rags from, from the dead, in refuge rags, in tree bark, okay, in antelope hide, in strips of antelope hide, in kusa grass fabric, in bark fabric, in wood shavings fabric, in head hair wool, in animal wool, in owl's wings. And that's what his clothes were made of. I was one who pulled out one hair and beard, so pulling out your hair one by one, pursuing the practice of pulling out hair and beard. I was one who stood continuously, so not sitting down, standing up all the time, stood continuously rejecting seats. I was one who squatted continuously, devoted to maintaining the squatting position. I was one who used a mattress of spikes. Okay? I made a mattress of spikes my bed. I dwelt pursuing the practice of bathing in water three times daily, including the evenings. Thus, in such a variety of ways, I dwelt pursuing the practice of tormenting and mortifying the body. Such was my asceticism. What's interesting, in this particular sutra, the story behind this sutra, okay, it starts out, okay, that at the beginning, there was um, Sunakata, 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 okay, who used to be one of the Buddhist monks, but he got very disillusioned because he didn't see the Buddha doing any psychic powers. Yeah? So he thought the Buddha didn't have any realizations because he wasn't showing off his psychic powers. And, you know, also, secondly, because he thought that the Buddha didn't practice asceticism and he thought a real recluse would practice asceticism so he had left the order and he was going around town criticizing the Buddha okay? and so in the sutra the, it's called the greater discourse on the lion's war because here the Buddha is talking about what the attainment of enlightenment means what his qualities are and here he's saying that you know he did all these ascetic practices so don't think that you know I'm just because uh, you know, they were thinking that he was lazy because he would eat, you know, breakfast and lunch. Or, actually, the Buddha ate only once a day, you know, but they thought he was lazier because he accepted meals from households, you know, invitations, things like that. So he was talking about why he, why, while he was a bodhisattva, the ascetic practices that he did. Okay. And now, so that was his asceticism. Then the second one was coarseness. So now he says, such was my coarseness, Sariputta, that even as the bowl of a tinduka tree accumulating over the years cakes and flakes off, so too dust and dirt accumulating over the years caked off my body and flaked off. Okay, so he didn't wash. All the dust and dirt just was all over his body and just 
you know, caked on and it flaked off, you know. It never occurred to me, oh, let me rub this dust and dirt off with my hand or let another rub this dust and dirt off with his hand. It never occurred to me thus. Such was my coarseness. Okay. How would you feel if you didn't bathe and walked around with gunk and, you know, your own body smell plus sweat plus dust and dirt just all over you all the time so thick that it would flake off okay and he never it never occurred to to him the Buddha was you know never occurred to him oh I should get clean you know so he's saying you know I was really renounced about the state of my body such was my scrupulous Shariputra that I was always mindful in stepping forwards and stepping backwards. I was full of pity even for the beings in a drop of water thus. Let me not hurt the tiny creatures in the crevices of the ground. Such was my scrupulousness. I was very, very careful about sentient beings. That was the third one. And the fourth one, seclusion. Such was my seclusion, Shariputra, that I would plunge into some forest and dwell there. And when I saw a cowherd or a shepherd or someone gathering grass or sticks or a woodsman, I would flee from grove to grove, from thicket to thicket, from hollow to hollow, from hillock to hillock. Why was that? So that they would not see me or I see them. Just as a forest-bred deer on seeing human beings flees from grove to grove, from thicket to thicket, from hollow to hollow, from hillock to hillock, so too when I saw a cowherd or a shepherd, shepherd, I fled in the sim- similar way. Such was my seclusion. Yeah. So he didn't worry about getting lonely. He didn't worry about people understanding him. I mean, there was really a kind of complete seclusion, no contact with other living beings, especially human beings whatsoever. I would go. Uh, I would go on all fours to the cow pens when the cattle had gone out and the cow herd had left them and I would feed on the dung of the young suckling calves. As long as my own excrement and urine lasted, I fed on my own excrement and urine. Such was my great distortion in feeding. It's really torturing the body. I would plunge into some awe-inspiring grove and dwell there. I think maybe this means like a grove grove with some kind of spirits or ghosts or something. A grove so awe-inspiring that normally it would make a man's hair stand up if he were not free from lust. When those cold wintry nights came during the eight days interval of frost, that was a special cold time in the middle of winter, I would dwell by night in the open and by day in the grove. So when it was really cold at night, he would stay outside where it was colder. And at the daytime when the outside, the the open space warmed up, he would stay in the grove where it was colder. In the last month of the hot season, and if you knew how hot the hot season was in the Indian Plains, it's really hot. In the last month of the hot season, I would dwell by day in the open and by night in the grove. Okay? So under the scorching sun in the day, um, 
and then in the, in the grove in the evening. And there came to me spontaneously the stanza never heard before. Chilled by night and scorched by day, alone in awe-inspiring groves, naked, no fire to sit beside, the sage yet pursues his quest. Okay? So, you know, in one way, you, you can look and you can see from the, from the side of the Buddha's mind, he was trying this and he saw that it didn't work. On the other hand, you know, looking back, you can see that he developed some renunciation towards physical sensations. But he also came to see that it didn't remove the attachment from his mind. Okay? I would make my bed in a charnel ground with the bones of the dead for a pillow. And cowherd boys came up and spat on me, urinated on me, threw dirt at me, and poked sticks into my ears. Yet I do not recall that I ever aroused an evil mind of hate against them. Such was my abiding in equanimity. Shariputra, there are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is thus. Purification comes about through food. They say, uh, so what this means is they think by eating a certain food, you purify your body and you purify your mind. Nowadays, you know, you find people who do this. Yeah? It's like very strict diets and, you know, you've got to eat only this and you can't eat that. Kind of born, born again, whatever they are, new diet. Okay? So they thought purification comes about by food. They say, let us live on cola fruits and they eat cola fruits. They eat cola fruit powder and they drink cola fruit water. I don't know what cola fruit is. They look it up. And they make many kinds of cola fruit concoctions. Now, I recall having eaten a single cola fruit a day. Shariputra, you may think that the cola fruit was bigger at that time, yet you should not regard it so. It was probably a small one, small fruit. The cola fruit was then at most the same size as now. Through feeding on a single cola fruit a day, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Okay? Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. You know, so the bones were just protruding like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. Yeah, so all the vertebrae. Because of eating so little, little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank far down in their sockets, looking like a gleam of water that has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled, and withered as a green bitter gourd shrivels and withers in the sun and wind. Because of eating so little, my belly skin adhered to my backbone. Okay? Thus, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone. And if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin. 
Because of eating so little, if I try to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots fell off from my body as I rubbed. Shariputra, there are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is thus. Purification comes about through food. They say, let us live on beans. And then this whole passage about what happens to your body is repeated. Okay. Then another group says, let us live on sesame. That whole passage, what happens to the body. And And the Buddha did all these practices. Let us live on rice. Okay. And they eat rice. They eat rice powder. They drink rice water. They make many kinds of rice concoctions. Now, I recall having eaten a single rice grain a day. Shariputra, you may think that the rice grain was bigger at that time, yet you should not regard it so. The rice grain was then at most the same size as now. Through feeding on a single rice grain a day, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because I ate so little and then all those symptoms of, you know, his backside like the camel's hoof and touching his belly and feeling his backbone, touching his backbone, feeling his belly, the ribs like rafters and the scalp shriveled and everything. The hair, and when he rubbed his limbs, the hair rotted at its roots, fell out from his body as he rubbed. Okay, so that's what the aesthetic practices he was doing, thinking that maybe it would calm the, the attachment to the body. Yet Shariputra, by such conduct, by such practice, by such performance of austerities, I did not attain any superhuman states. I did not attain any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. Okay, so it was all useless. Why was that? Because I did not attain that noble wisdom, which, when attained as is noble and emancipating and leads the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. So he had tortured his body, okay, didn't attain any spiritual realizations. Why? Because he hadn't generated wisdom. And the particular kind of wisdom that when you meditate on it and familiarize yourself with it, leads to the destruction of ignorance, anger, and attachment, leads to the destruction of the taints and the attainment of liberation. So he's really pinpointing here how important the development of wisdom is. Okay? And so similarly, when we were talking yesterday about attaining these different states of samadhi and yet falling down afterwards, the point was not don't try and attain samadhi try and and do that but always make sure you incorporate wisdom and conjoin the meditation with wisdom okay Shariputra there are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this purification comes about through the round of rebirths okay in other words somehow you progress through the round of rebirths But it is impossible to find a realm in the round that I have not already passed through in this long journey, except for the gods of the pure abodes. Okay, so according to the Pali teachings, the fundamental vehicle, within the form realm, 
okay, within the fourth jhana, there are certain pure lands where a non-returner can be born and um, a non-return and where a non-returner can attain arhatship from that that pure land. Somebody's called a non-returner because they know they've uh, reached a state of realization where they no longer uh, return to the desire realm. Okay? So there, it's the stage right before you attain our hardship. So the Buddha is saying, except being born in those pure lands, those pure abodes, where only the non-returners can be reborn. Nobody else can be reborn in those particular uh, pure, pure, land, pure abodes. He's been born everywhere in samsara. Mm-hmm. And so have we, for that matter. Okay. So he's saying, you know, except for that realm, and I and had passed through the round as a god in pure abodes, I would never, and if I had passed, you know, through the round and been born as a god in those pure abodes, I would never have returned to this world because he would have attained our hardship. Okay? So he's saying all those people who think that just by somehow being born again and again, you know, eventually you wear out your karma, or maybe you're always going in a progressively upper state and you just naturally, as a matter of course, attain our hardship. He's saying, wrong view. Okay. There are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this purification comes about through some particular kind of rebirth. Okay, so having some certain rebirth. But it is impossible to find a kind of rebirth that I have not been born in already in this long journey, except for the God of the pure abode. And if I had been born as that, I would not be here now. There are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Purification comes about through some particular abode. The last one was some particular kind of rebirth. Now it's some particular abode. But again, it is impossible to find a kind of abode that I have not already dwelt in except for this God realm. There are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Purification comes about through sacrifice. And here he's talking about um, like the Brahmins used to make sacrifice you sacrifice animals, you sacrifice, you do all these rituals, and you make different offerings and different sacrifices. And that's how you attain liberation. Okay, but it is impossible to find a kind of sacrifice that has not already been offered by me in this long journey when I was either a head-anointed noble king or a well-to-do Brahman, Brahman, because it was the kings and the Brahmins who could afford to do the sacrifices. Even nowadays, you know, many people do sacrifices in Nepal. There's a certain day in the autumn, it's horrible, where um, the Hindus sacrifice sheep and all sorts of animals. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and the idea is that you, you know, please the gods and you attain an upper rebirth through that. There are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Purification comes through fire worship, but it is impossible to find a kind of fire that has not already been worshipped by me in this long journey. You know, 
when I was either a head anointed noble king or a well-to-do Brahmin. Shariputra, there are certain recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. As long as this good man is still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth and the prime of his life, so long is he perfect in his lucid wisdom. But when this good man is old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and comes to the last stage, being 80, 90, or 100 years old, then the lucidity of his wisdom is lost. But it should not be regarded so. I am now old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage. My years have turned 80. So this is just before the Buddha's Parinirvana. Now suppose that I had four disciples with a hundred years lifespan, perfect in mindfulness, retentiveness, retentiveness of the teaching, memory of the teaching, and lucidity of wisdom. Just as a skilled archer trained and practiced and tested would easily shoot a light arrow across the shadow of a palm tree, suppose that they were even to that extent perfect in mindfulness, retentiveness, memory, and lucidity of wisdom. Suppose that they continuously asked me about the four foundations of mindfulness and that I answered them when they asked and that they remembered each answer of mine and never asked a subsidiary question or paused except to eat, drink, consume food, taste, urinate, defecate, and rest in order to remove sleepiness and tiredness. Okay. So even having students as perfect as that, still the Tathagata's exposition of the Dharma, his explanations of the factors of enlightenment, and his replies to questions would not yet come to an end, even when he's that old. That's how great the lucidity of his mind is. But meanwhile, those four disciples of mine with their hundred years' lifespans would have died at the end of those hundred years. Shariputra, even if you have to carry, carry me about on a bed, still there will be no change in the lucidity of a Tathagata's wisdom. Rightly speaking, were it to be said of anyone, a being not subject to delusion has appeared in the world for the welfare and happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. It is of me, indeed, that rightly speaking, this should be said. Okay? And so the Buddha was describing all these Qualities, you know, before he was talking about the fearlessnesses and the different qualities of the Buddha, describing all these ascetic practices, you know, in order to refute uh, Sunakata, Sunakata, who had been, who had denounced him and said, he does he has no realizations? He's incapable of leading to liberation and enlightenment. Okay, so. Any questions, comments? Yeah. So I read something that you can't develop wisdom with the concentration that you have in the formless world. Right. Oh, okay. So um, you had read that you can't develop uh, wisdom or insight with the concentration in the formless realm. And why is that? That's because the mind is too deep in the single-pointedness 
is focused on infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, or neither discrimination or non-discrimination. So the mind has gotten too subtle, too withdrawn in samadhi to to have the analytical wisdom uh, and the you know that you need in order to develop this uh, insight. Yeah. You've been too single pointed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that through all those years of austerity, mm-hmm. uh, what we hear is that it didn't work. But what we don't hear about is the state of mind through that. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? His state of mind? Yeah. Well, we do hear about the state of his mind through that because he was saying. Um, where was it? One of the parts, you know, that it, um, you know, that with the when the dust and dirt was caked on him, it never occurred to him to take it off. So it's saying that he he did let go of attachment, you know, to the body to some extent that he he wasn't attached to to um, you know to to being filthy like that. Um, and then in the other one, he was. Uh, he had developed equanimity. Oh, yeah, when the little boys would pee on him and throw things at him in the charnel ground, he never developed a malicious thought towards them. Okay? So it does say something about the state of his mind. But he also, at a certain point, realized he's been doing this and he hasn't gotten the realizations he sought. And that's when he left the the ascetic practices okay he was meditating with his five friends he left them yeah because although he had developed samadhi to some extent yeah in doing this because remember he also had samadhi from before but he saw that just torturing the body you know you don't gain any wisdom you don't cut off the afflictions and so he left his five companions and they all just denounced him. They said, oh, you're a chicken and you're just, you know, a softy. And, and that's when uh, Sujata, one of the village girls, came and gave him some rice. And he ate that, regained his physical strength. He crossed the Narajana River, whatever it's called, the river. And then he went into modern-day Bodhgaya, you know, and sat beneath the Bodhi tree. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of a reason, in a sense, of the asceticism. I mean, if you had just gone and sat and attained liberation and enlightenment, mm-hmm. it's almost like kind of the way that you've read the discourses, and so that it would disprove anybody saying he hadn't experienced some other thing. So if he had just gone and Okay. So why did the Buddha do all this asceticism? You know, he couldn't he have just gone and sat down and attained enlightenment right away. Well, that's true. If he had done that, then there could still be people who who thought, oh, but you know acting like a dog could have brought you enlightenment also or any of these other paths of asceticism could have brought you enlightenment so to just prove that that was one reason also another reason 
was to show that he had very strong energy and he was willing to undergo hardship. Okay? Yeah? So, you know, some of us, of course, he underwent extreme hardship, but he was really longing for the spiritual goal. Whereas most of us, you know, we don't want to undergo even a little bit of hardship, even in the Buddhist dispensation now, which doesn't even teach supreme, you know, all this severe asceticism. Yeah? Yeah? So the Buddha was saying, you know, also, you know, when you have a really strong wish to attain nirvana, then you're willing to undergo a hardship in order to attain nirvana. Okay, so he was showing that through his example. So he was also uh, refuting anybody else who might have said, oh, you're a softie or, you know, you, you don't know these other views and things like that. And he was setting an example to some extent for us in one way of don't waste your time doing asceticism but in another way, uh, develop some fortitude so that you can go through hardship. Yeah. In other words, don't expect nirvana to come to you on a silver platter without having to exert yourself. Now, he's not telling us to exert ourselves doing what he did, those extreme practices. You know? But we have to exert ourselves a little bit. Yeah, We have to be willing to undergo a little bit of you know, discomfort. Because if all we do is seek our comfort, then we're embroiled in attachment to the objects of the five senses. And that attachment prevents liberation. Okay, does that make some sense to people? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah? Was the Bodhi tree a sacred place before he did Was the Bodhi tree... I don't know if that... I don't think that particular Bodhi tree was a sacred tree... Um, whether Bodhi trees in general were or not, I have no idea. I don't know. I always talk about how the Buddha did asceticism uh, for seven years. But there wasn't any time frame put on a period of time before that when he attained his uh, concentration in Samadhi. The, the period of time when he was with the two teachers. Uh huh. don't talk about that. didn't mention how, how long he was how with them. Yeah, I don't think it sounds like from the things that... Because I think he left the palace at 29 and he was doing a citizen for six years and he attained enlightenment at 35. So I think that, you know, the time he spent with the two teachers, that he accomplished what they had taught fairly rapidly. Yes, what do you think about this kind of asceticism? It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's nutty. Yeah. Well, I keep thinking um, the cultural context, it seemed like everyone was trying all yes. kinds of things. Yeah. Right? And maybe we're not so different from that in a certain way. Right. You know, like these um, faith healers, and mm-hmm. we can point at certain kinds of spirituality even in the U.S. Right. You know, speaking in tongues and, you know, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And there's people really searching. Yeah. And really trying everything. Yeah. And kind of make these breakthroughs that are nearly impossible to make. Yeah. You know, so it just seemed like he was just 
trying everything that we saw everyone trying yeah. in India at that time. It seems like it was really a pretty heightened search for mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At that time, at the Buddhist time, the society was such that there was a lot of change going on economically and politically. Mm-hmm. It was the rise of these small republics. There was more uh, economy. There was a certain social instability and sense of change. And those historical times seemed to propel people more towards spirituality. And India in general, actually, is quite a spiritual country even now. Um, although it's becoming much more materialistic, I must say. Uh, and so he was trying everything that, that was available at that time. And in a way, like you said, nowadays we just have different things available. We have crystals and we have, uh, you know, different kinds of, um, you know, if you dance in a certain way, if you smell certain things, if you... Uh, what about this guy even now who teaches you to walk across fire? Yeah. Yeah, there's some guy now who charges you a lot in a workshop and you learn to walk across fire. Okay, so there's, there's you know, these all these different kind of methods that people think and will get you to some high state. Yeah, one friend was um, using an isolation tank. Oh, an isolation tank where you don't have any physical yeah, sensitivity. Yeah, water, but you're yeah. Really and I mean, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or drugs. Look at the whole search for drugs. You know, people seeking some high spiritual experience through drugs. Yeah? And nowadays, you know, I mean, I was hearing somebody tell me that their friend was going to a certain place of South America where they do these things with some very strong drug and they all hallucinate and they purify themselves and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah? Yeah, stay up all night and don't eat after they take this drug. And you know, yeah, so human beings looking <laughs> for something that is going to relieve suffering. But you know, if you don't have a teacher like the Buddha to show you the way from their own experience to full enlightenment, where you can't fall back, then you get stuck in all these other kinds of things. I don't actually understand the rationale. Somebody explained it. Mm-hmm. Why torturing would take it away? Well, uh, you, a mental fortitude. Yeah, but you ask in the Catholic Church, you know, why did they do self-flagellation and wear hair shirts? Yeah. yeah. It's the idea that if you torture the body, you subdue the body. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the idea that if you beat a child... The child becomes subdued and submits. So, you know, so you do the same to your own body. Yeah, then your physical urges will diminish and your attachment to the body will grow less. But it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, there were people, I was reading, I was at people going in the, I mean, even nowadays, like in the, in the ocean outside of Ireland standing in the freezing water and you know all these kinds of quite severe practices thinking to to tame the body and its urges mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is it that it, that doesn't what I got from the reading was that that doesn't produce realizations mm-hmm. but I didn't quite get that that doesn't tame the body 
Okay. I mean, she, it sounded like it did reduce it. Yeah. So you, you got that it didn't a- attain realizations, but didn't that subdue the body somewhat? Well, I guess if you're eating one grain of rice a day, you don't have very much physical energy <laughs> for your body to be interested in sex or something like that. Okay. But you're not really dealing with the issue, are you? Okay. So, so in that way, it's, it's like maybe you, you, through changing your body, you know, you get spaced out because you don't have enough sugar in your bloodstream. So then you're not so interested in music, for example. Okay, but that's not taming your attachment to music. Exactly. As soon as you regain your strength, all the attachments right back. Due to this narration, I'll dream the enlightened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering, 
Nella Parna Rajan Brahma, Nella Parna Gaudi Pai, 